0: Genesis fifty verse fifteen. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us, and will certainly requite us all the evil which we have done unto him. And they sent a messenger messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before thee he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee the trespasses of thy brethren, for their sin which they did unto thee, evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespasses of the servants of God unto thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. (coughs) Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. (coughs) And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived a hundred and ten years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, and the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were brought upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you, and bring you out of this land, unto the land which I swear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from hence, and so Joseph died, being a hundred and ten years old, and they embalmed, embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So far God's word. <clears throat> so now we have come to an end of the life of Joseph, and I think we've heard about thirty sermons on him and also his family. And uh, I trust that you have really gotten to know him, but most importantly, of course, the God that he served and in his life, we see that great covenant God who uh, I think Paul often starts the the service out with this, he never forsakes that his the work that his hands have begun, and we see that so clearly in the life of Joseph, despite things that seemingly look incredibly impossible. God is with him, especially when you look in retrospect. The last time we looked at the death of his father, that was the last patriarch, and we saw how both Israel and Egypt mourned with a great mourning with an enormous state funeral as he was brought back to the land. In the beginning of Genesis, we see the creation of the world and God making uh, breathing in life into the nostrils of men. And here at the very last verse, we see the death of another, of uh, of Joseph, the patriarch. Great beginnings and great endings are found in Genesis. So today I would like to look at three points. We look at the brother's concern, we look at Joseph's response, and we look at the death of Joseph. The family had uh, since returned uh, from Jacob's burial, um, and Joseph, as promised, he came back to um, being a man of his word, he came back to Egypt once again. You know, it's quite remarkable. The famine was over. You may think there would be reasonable to stay there. You know, they're there anyway, they're all back. Why don't you stay there? But he returns back to resume his duties. And of course, in the end, it's all the providence of God that the whole family goes back in. And Calvin said, as it were, Israel was shut in until the appointed time, until God would release them from Israel once again. And there's a lesson in it for us as well. There is, no matter what our current situation is, that God appoints a time by his secret counsel, he doesn't reveal that to us beforehand. We might have very reasonable arguments as to our problems and how it should be solved. Maybe it's a location or sicknesses or other difficulties. But let us be confident and thankful also in all circumstances, knowing that he's absolutely sovereign and no good thing does he withhold from us. So Jacob was buried. And soon afterwards, you see, the brothers were talking to each other concerning what Joseph would do to them. Now their father had died. It's kind of a a puzzling that they would be talking like this. Uh, Perhaps they were freshly reminded, being back in Canaan, in the land, of uh, of their sins. Maybe they saw the pit that they had put Joseph in. Um, They saw the place, the home, where they had brought so much misery upon their father uh, by their story of Joseph being eaten by animals. Uh, maybe they traveled and they saw those slave caravans and they were reminded of what they had done to their brothers anyway they were quite concerned worried and frightened and as you can see in verse 14 and 15 they were quite certain of it they recalled as the text says all the evil that they had done unto him their conscience was freshly smitten of their sins of the past now, uh, so and so they reason among themselves: as their father is now gone, um, he will certainly repay him. Now, Joseph has a long memory, and that he is ready to get back at him at this time. Jacob was the only thing that stood between Joseph and them. He was kind of their guardian, guarding, and uh, he had only been nice to them out of respect for their father, Jacob. They decide, at first, to go through the mediator. Uh, Moses doesn't tell us who it was. Maybe it was Benjamin, who had nothing to do with the crimes that were committed earlier. Maybe it was a trusted or close servant to Joseph. But uh, in verse 16, it's kind of interesting. It says that, uh, that Jacob had told them to tell Joseph that he should forgive his brothers. Now, Moses precisely records these words uh, as they spoken by the messenger but if actually if Jacob actually told the brothers this we are not certain it seems unlikely though perhaps they felt that going through their father's dying words would, would in, in, in pretense would kind of bolster their case it certainly would have seemed odd that Jacob had not dealt with the issue while he was yet alive in Egypt all those years he was there for 17 years Those of conduct to his family had been extremely gracious kind and he was forgiving in fact this problem or this concern he had dealt with back in chapter 45 when he had revealed himself to him 45 verse 7 he said to his brothers God sent me before you to preserve you a prosperity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance so now It was not you that sent me thither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So it would be quite unlikely that it was Jacob that was now concerned somehow that Joseph would be vengeful in his conduct to his brethren. When he had only showed the opposite. So, these are likely their own words, and that not of Jacob. <clears throat> so, they kind of go back to the old family trade, isn't it? A little scheme, a little lie to get something accomplished, pretending something. And in this case, pretending that Jacob had requested this. And Some sins are hard to win, and it seems to be one of these sins that kind of runs in this family. If you look at their history. Now, we can fault them, of course, and it showed a great deal of disrespect to an unkindness to Jacob and to Joseph, a lack of faith in God when they did this. Um, and it would have been a, a great example of repentance, actually, of perfect repentance if, it had not been, if they had not come up with this little scheme. Nevertheless, they do make an honest profession of their sin. Notice the words they use. They talk about trespasses. They talk about sin. And asking him to forgive them. Uh, for, that, that Joseph would forgive them. Of all the sin they had committed. They had previously expressed some shame. Some regret. But now it is out without reservation. Or without an excuse. And they, they cast themselves on the ground before him. Here we see again the story of Joseph. Comes full circle isn't it? It started with that dream that he dreamed back in chapter 37. When those sheaves would bow down to the ground. And here we see that happening once again. Like the, the parable that <clears throat> Christ spoke about the lost son. When he comes back he casts himself in front of his father. And he says you know I'll just be a servant. And here we, we, see, him, or we see them doing the same. And he said, they say, well, we'll just be slaves and we'll pay you back, as it were, for the evil that they had done. Their repentance was real. You know, you recall once they had said, shall you have dominion over us? Will you reign over us? You know, that, that mockery that they had spoken to him. And that is that not the heart of every unconverted person, right? Or was that not the heart of us? in our unconverted state, that we said that we'll have you, God, not reign over us. You will not have dominion over us. We'll do our own thing. And God is able to humble us, is he not? In ways that we could never have imagined. And every conversion to Christ is a picture of that humbling. Sometimes the degree of humbling relates to the degree of Proudness that we have we think of Nebuchadnezzar that great king who was humbled down like an ordinary cow eating the grass how humbled he was God struck down the proud and self-righteous soul and he was leading other people to persecute the church and then he had to be led by other people because he was struck blind and he was able to humble down the self-reliant apostle Peter <clears throat> when he was humbled by a little girl. Proverbs 29, 23, a, proud, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble spirit. Look at the unkindness of these brothers to Joseph. <clears throat> After all he had done for them, they still had a spirit of unbelief in them, thinking and attributing evil to their brother, who had not done anything deserve this kind of suspicion even when they had repented earlier now they were walking with this in their mind they were entertaining this it robbed them of their peace that they already had the assurances that Joseph already had given them these guys thought that Joseph perhaps was kind of like them perhaps they were the type that kept lists of someone wrongdoing maybe you know the sentiment someone has wronged you sinned against you and even when forgiveness has been sought for and you have granted it, there's a little folder in the back of your mind where you once in a while go back and like an FBI agent, you go through that file and you're freshly reminded of someone else's wrongdoing. You muse upon it. You think about it and inflames all kinds of wrong fruits in us, bitterness, Anger, unforgiveness, and so on. This particularly is destructive in the merits, but also of course in the church or co-workers, friends. First Corinthians 13, verse 7. Love bear it all f- all things, believe it all things, hope at all things, endure at all things. So in a way they accuse Joseph of being like that when they think like this. They also forgot how gracious God was to them and how gracious. God had dealt with them. It shows a great deal of unthankfulness to God. At the end of verse 17, we see Joseph weeping, it says, as we have seen him many times before. Maybe tears of joy, or perhaps because he saw some fruit, or maybe tears of sadness that after all those years, they didn't quite get it yet. It shows against the heart of the saint. He longs to see them, um, that they are aware of their sin and who they've sinned against, and the mercy that God has shown them. In a way, it's also a little insight <coughs> in these brothers' lives, um, and like them, that even our repentance is not always perfect. There's always an element of sin in it. Sin in it. Uh, anything we do this side of eternity, our best efforts, our works, our prayers, motives, they're still stained with sin, isn't it? There's still something in it that is not quite right. And uh, maybe that gets you discouraged at times as you look at that and you navel gaze and you, you see there's much imperfection in us. But then let us boldly go through the throne of grace to our perfect Redeemer. Whose life is perfectly, was perfectly lived and applied to our account. And let us look to that great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and look to his finished work. That makes us perfect and accepted in him. Second point Joseph's response. Here, once again, we see him, as he did many times before, responding in that that God honoring way. We have seen this in all the the challenging situations that he was at and temptation. He would answer or give a remark back or an action that reflected who and what was important in his life, who he valued, and who his real master was. It leaked out of him quickly. When he was tempted by the mistress, for instance, he did not spend time going through the pros pro and cons of the opportunity. When the attu- opportunity arose to, to take credit, when he was um, applauded for his wisdom, he, he, he pointed to God immediately. Joseph lived a life that was close to his God, and it showed in every situation. Now when he sees his brothers here, again, he probably reminded how they sold him like meat, how they mocked him for his dream how they stole the, him in the prime of his life and uh, they see he sees them groveling in the, in the dust in the dirt in front of him what does he do and, and would the opportunity not be a little bit of a temptation to say well I'm going to give them a little bit of a scare here I'm going to keep them down a little bit longer I'm going to tell them of the hardships that I endured, the dirty prison, the false accusation of being a rapist, the years of being absent from my father. I'm going to make them feel a little bit. I'm going to give them a great lesson in humility. Or perhaps he could have said, I told you so. I told you so when I had that dream. Look, here it is. We love to be right, don't we? And when the opportunity comes, we love to be prideful in it. We love to have those I, I got you moment. I told you so. Not so with Joseph. <clears throat> Again, here he reflects the image of the Savior, whom he is such a great picture of, and whom Joseph had lived by, by the grace of God, of course. And he uses wisdom when he talks to them without elevating himself. Notice how he removes their fears and goes to what is really important. He first tells them to, to fear not." And he dismantles any idea that he has plans for them, of retribution, of getting back to them. He gives them comfort, he gives them peace, and immediately says, "I'm not in the place of God." Vengeance is not mine to dispense. And he displays a great love to them, and that love casts out fears. <clears throat> he says he will not take to himself or seize that power that only God has vengeance. He points away from himself to God. He is not the main actor in this story that has unfolded before us, but it is God who is the chief actor in their history as well he continues to explain to them why there is no bitterness or hate for them from him he has a God trans view of all things and he tells them, yes most certainly it was wicked what you did he did not um, say their sin was good that it wasn't evil he's not hiding that he's plain and honest with them Though they thought to bring to naught that prophetic dream he had dreamed once. Uh, he, he dreamed once and revealed to them, yet their puny evil efforts have brought forth their own redemption. What a what an amazing picture of the kindness of God. And here we have a prime example of the great, great doctrine of providence, the providence of God, and uh, in, in the LBC I'll read a, a bit of a chunk out of it to get a good idea, a good grasp of it. The LBC says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, and infinite goodness and mercy. In another section in that same chapter, it says, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extended itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions of both angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, which also he doth most wisely and powerfully bound it, and otherwise ordered and governed, it is manifold in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceeded only from the creatures, and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither neither is nor the author or the approver of sin. In other words, God is absolutely sovereign and unrivaled in sovereignty. And through and in and by the acts of sinful men, he does accomplish his end. Although he is never the author of sin. Never any sin comes out of him. It's out of the wickedness, in this case, of the brothers of Joseph. Another doctrine that goes with this doctrine is the doctrine called concurrence. So the idea of two rivers or more coming together in one stream. It explains the reality that God and humans both act at the same time that the Lord's plans are fulfilled. And that the choices they do are truly their own. You can think of the life of Job, for instance, It's a good illustration of concurrence. We see there's three major players in in Job's suffering. There's Satan. There is the Sabians and the Chaldeans who attack the family livestock. And there's God that permits this to happen. I've got this from Table Talk and it says, But the intent of each party in producing the same outcome, Job's suffering, Was different. Satan intended it to discredit Job and by extension to discredit God. The intent of the Chaldeans and the Sabians were to enrich themselves, those were the ones that stole his cattle. Our Lord's intent was to vindicate Job's faith. Each of these players was necessary, involved in Job's suffering, but at different levels and with different motivations. There was a concurrence among them that Job should suffer, but each had a different reason for, their, for this suffering. God intended it, however, for good. The other players had evil motives. Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And of course we see that greatly reflected. I've appealed to it a few times in the life of Joseph. In the life of Christ and his death on the cross. <clears throat> Acts 2.23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken by wicked hands. And have crucified and slain. So it was wicked and evil. What those people did to the Lord Jesus. Yet, it brought about the greatest act of redemption and forgiveness to the world. And all the blessings that flow from the Lord Jesus. And how helpful had this understanding, which Joseph knew very much, had been in his life. You can really see it. That it undergirded everything that he did. There was no bitterness in him. He had a strong faith in God and it sustained him in all these troubling situations that he was in. And now he was all too eager to share this vision and this understanding with his brothers as he had done before. Right? Sometimes we're slow to learn. We need to be, if you're like me, you need to be taught again and again and again and we point out again and again these same doctrines to, to one another, to encourage one another. So they, like us, need to be reminded. They were fragile. And um, Sometimes they forgot. You know, our Bible doctrines are not just in the back of our hymnal as an interesting statement of faith, but they're there to for us to grab hold on, to strengthen us, to give us hope in the most darkest of times, a light on our path, and it sustains us and gives us purpose. Notice again in verse twenty. Joseph explains to them again how God used and overruled their wickedness. And turned it into the saving of many people. Them, the family, the nation of Israel, the surrounding nation. And how eager he was to comfort them. The promises that he would take care of them in the future. It revealed his heart and his character. And what an excellent example he was of... Loving those that had wronged him of the Lord Jesus Christ, who interceded even at his last moments in life for those that stood there around the cross. Luke 23 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what a great example of forgiving those that have wronged against us, even to the worst. And what a great example that he was for loving your enemies. A picture of the readiness to forgive, the quickness, without keeping grudges or ill will. Matthew six fourteen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men not their trespasses, neither will your heavenly father forgive your trespasses. If you're a believer, you have been forgiven an infinite debt, isn't it? In the sense that you had offended a holy God, and in light of that forgiveness, we can forgive those that come to us and seek for forgiveness. Think of the parable of the unforgiving servant, who had been forgiven an enormous amount of debt, billions of dollars, and when someone owed him a few pennies, he was harsh. And he demanded a repayment. Christ tells Peter after he asked him, and he thought he was being pretty generous, said, Do I forgive my brother seven times? The Lord Jesus said, Seven times, seven times. And a picture of you keep forgiving people. Ephesians 4 34. But be kind to one another, tender hearted. And it's a great example of the tender heartedness of Joseph. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And how should this draw us to a sympathetic Savior who is eager to forgive, ready to extend mercy, and who is long suffering with us? It's great to think about it how patient, even as a believer, God has been with you, how kind. He has been to you. What a sympathetic high priest we have. And if you come to him. He will not cast you out. Just like these brothers. We are slow to learn yes. But he will finish the work that he has begun in us. Sometimes maybe we have a lack of assurance. We see little progress. But be rest assured. That if he starts a work in us. He will finish it. Until the final day. The death of Joseph. (coughs) With the eye on future promises, dwelt Joseph dwelt in Egypt for the remainder of his life. It would have been about fifty more years after his father's death. His fathers had dwelt in tents in much different circumstances. um, But they all had the same promise of the land that they would one day inherit. (coughs) And amidst all the honors and affluence that Joseph had now, he also looked forward to that promise. And he would remind those around him once again of that promised land. God had told Abraham that his offspring would be in a strange land for 400 years. And Joseph must not be a stranger to that prophecy he would be blessed, verse 23, with his, to see his grandchildren. They would be brought to sit upon his knees. And they would learn from his wisdom. And he would teach that new generation. Imagine the stories that he could have told his offspring of God's faithfulness. and Of God's, God's goodness. Of the personal account of, of the work of God in his life. How important it is that we do that to our children, gar- grandchildren. Always point him like Joseph to what God has done. And what he is doing. And to redeem that time that we have. To redeem it. To tell them. It's also interesting to note uh, that he did not follow the example of his uh, forefathers. He didn't marry any more wives. He's the only patriarchs who stuck with one wife so he had learned from the strife that was in his family and again we see the, the wisdom that he had in verse 24 and just like Jacob had done he addresses his brothers uh, most likely most of his brothers had died These are probably the offspring of his, his brothers <clears throat> and uh, he, speak, he, he seek, speaks to them one more time and points them to God, encourages them encourages them with the promises that God would visit the nation, not in judgment sometimes as this term is used but in love and in grace and in mercy he says I die he was not afraid of it he had lived a life uh, in such a way that he could have died at any moment and that when death came he had few regrets and he was ready to be gathered unto his people and unto his God He held fast the hope in God. And he had by grace lived that throughout his life. He was not concerned with his own state at death. Or he was not worried about funeral plans. um, or, or, Or state funerals in that way. And he comforted them with the nation's future. That they would one day be removed out of this place. He says God will visit and bring you out. God will visit and bring you out even if there was much time between then and the Exodus. How fitting it was that he speaks to them the word of God. He didn't all have the Bible like we have, but he had the the uh, tradition from the fathers that was given to him and that's what he preached to them. He preached to them the word of God and what more could he say what more What more hope can you give to someone than the word of God it's the word of God that quickens that makes a life that gives hope that settles us even when the promises are afar off which those times would come for the nation in verse 25 <clears throat> he made them promise that they would carry his bones back just like his father had made him do. He did not ask him to carry his bones back right away or that there immediately would be a funeral. His temporal grave or the place where his coffin would rest would be in Egypt. It would be a sign to those Israelites that would follow not to forget Cain, not to be too enamored with the pleasures of Egypt and all that the land Offered, And right now it seemed like paradise down there. It was green. They had the, the best portion. It was a great place to be. But he was left there. And he says to them while well, he's dead. He yet speaks as it were. He says don't forget the God of our fathers. And when things. And in the ages to come. And time gets more difficult. You got that reminder. You've got that coffin. You've got that promise. That God will visit the nation one more time or again there was a grave that coffin and there were those bones that served as a reminder for them in the moments before death he looked to the promised land which was a picture of the heavenly land and most of all the God of his fathers verse 26 so Joseph died being 110 years old they embalmed him And he was put in a coffin. In Egypt. So he dies. Being fully reconciled. With his former enemies. And full of faith. He had a lot of riches. And grandeur at his disposal. And he had let. He had lived a great. exemplary life. But that could not save him. From the last enemy isn't it. That we all have to face. The fruit face. The fruit and the effects of sin the wages of sin Joseph dies and is embalmed in his place into a coffin and there his body awaits until the return of Canaan there he is generation after generation until the Passover that great type of the work of Christ he is taken out in haste out of Egypt Exodus 13 verse 19 and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him and he had for he had straightly sworn. The children of Israel saying. God will surely visit you. And ye shall carry up my bones. Away thence with you. And later on. in Joshua. Joseph is buried. Well we have come to an end. Of the life of Joseph. And we have seen a great picture. A great figure. A great type. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. More than in any other person. I would say in the. Old Testament there's hundreds of them first we see his innocence his purity his blamelessness his meekness and gentleness and yet we see the authoritativeness certain times coupled with wisdom and kindness he was greatly tempted over a long period of time showing us the great high priest that was to come Hebrews 7.26 For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. <clears throat> we see in Joseph one that would speak of all, to all types of people, the prisoners, his erring family, sinners, and to the king of land. And as the prime minister, he would rule with wisdom and equity. In his history, we see that he was deeply humiliated and then lifted up to glory. He was like Christ sent to his own, sent by the Father, but his own received him not. He suffered not for his own sins, but he suffered at the hands of others. He bears the blame and punishment others deserved. Think of the shame he took, being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. One commentator says his cup was filled to the overflowing with other men's sins. He was betrayed, sold, condemned, and as good as left for dead in his hopeless dungeon. He had, as it were, given his life for his brothers to save them years later, delivered them, and delivered them from certain death. And like Christ, he was sent out as a light to the Gentiles, the sur- surrounding nations. He was rejected by his own, but the Gentiles or Gentile nation, Egypt, accepted him. But in the end, Joseph was a great lesser light, just like all the other types and figures that pointed to Christ. They pointed to that ultimate light, the greatest of all lights that was to come in the world <clears throat> that bread from heaven fulfills all those thousands of pictures that we see throughout the mosaic of scripture and it all points to him the storehouse of food that Joseph built are but small compared to what Christ offers all the treasures that are in him and God raised him up from the dead So that if we trust in him. His death death becomes ours. The sins of the believer. Are laid upon him. And atoned. And we are seated in glory. And we have an intercessor. There interceding for us. If you have never come to him. Go to him now with your sin. And like Joseph's brethren. Be welcome there be received there with an eagerness to forgive and to apply all the merits of the Lord Jesus' life to your account I'd like to close with one of my favorite passages concerning the gospel 2nd Corinthians five seventeen. therefore if any man be in Christ he is a new creature all things are passed away behold all things become new and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to with that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you, who urges us, We pray you in Christ that be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin? That we might be the righteousness of God in him. Let us pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for your glorious work. That started in those early days in history in Genesis, Lord. And pointing us to him that was to come. Father, if we don't see the Old Testament with a view of the Lord Jesus, Lord, we don't see nothing. And I would pray that we would, that you would open our eyes for the first time perhaps. Or if we are like the brethren, maybe have a dim view of things, Lord, that you would fully show us that great redemption that we have in him. That, uh, that took our sins upon the cross. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, bless your word to us. Lord, that we, we would apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you that we have a sympathetic Savior who bears our iniquities, our shortcomings, who knows that we are frail and that we are but dust. Father, we thank you for his work. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.